Two weeks ago, I took up the subject of what it means for a husband to love his wife and what it means for children to obey their parents from Colossians 3, 19 to 21, and we admittedly skipped verse 18. I, I did so because of two reasons. One, I wanted to deal with the easier subjects first of children and husbands and uh, wanted to deal with this uh, issue of wives and submission uh, fully and completely. The second thing was I needed two weeks to figure out what in the world I was going to say on this important subject. And I'll tell you, it's been an interesting two weeks to get your comments and your feedback. Uh, even if you raised eyebrows, I had some husbands who asked me if I was going to be as tough on the women as I was on the men because they wanted to be sure their wife was present today. So if your husband woke up today and he was in an exceptionally good mood, you know why. It's like, you're going to get it. Oh, so. Secondly, I had people ask me a number of questions, uh, hoping that I'd address particular subjects, and I hope to be able to help you today, although I'm sure I won't be able to answer all of your questions. And the other thing that some of you, some of our ladies suggested, was that I linked um, wives and slaves together in order to make a subtle point. And uh, <laughs> for the record, I did not do that. But rather, what's been interesting is that the flurry of this discussion has reminded me again that the issues that we deal with today are real, and they're really important. And the issues that are in front of us are really relevant to where we live. So my aim this morning is to do two things. The text that we're in is a tough one. And therefore, I want to take a moment and explain to you some of the things that relate to how you study this passage Because this passage is often used as a means to undercut the authority of the Scriptures. And for that matter, the way that certain people would handle it could tend towards a slippery slope in opening the door for other unfortunate interpretations. And so I want to talk a little bit about hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for how you study the Bible. Secondly, my aim is to be able to give you some helpful information on how to apply Jesus-centeredness to womanhood and workplace. Now, most of our time is going to be spent on the womanhood issue. We'll spend a little bit of time on the workplace. But my sense is is that really where the rub hits us and where the real tough texts deal in our lives is this issue of men and women. And so the bulk of our time is going to be spent on that subject. We're going to look at what does it mean to be a biblical, godly wife? What does it mean to be godly in the workplace? What does it mean to take the idea of Jesus being the core and translate that into the real world in which we live? So that's what my rather hearty aim is today, to be able to deal with both the hermeneutical issues, the biblical issues, and also the practical application of it. So the question that we begin with is this, this bigger question of how do you understand the Bible, or how do you study the Bible, or what are the means by which you go to determine what a particular text says? The reason this is important is because how you interpret a Bible and the way that you look at a text relates to fundamental principles undergirding the Bible and then also informing conclusions that you will come to. In other words, if you have bad hermeneutics or bad methods of studying the Bible, you'll come to bad conclusions. And also, when someone comes to you and uses a text and uses it to purport a certain view that is anti, really, the message of the Bible, you need to know how to be able to refute that and help someone understand what the Bible is really saying. So the issue is actually extremely important. You may not be aware, but this text can be somewhat controversial. (laughs) In fact, some have suggested, first, that the Bible, because of this passage, supports slavery. 
So the first question we have to wrestle with is, so does the Bible really support slavery? And then the second question, right along with that within this text, is, so if you handle the the issue of slavery in a particular way, then is there any parallel between how you handle the slavery issue and how you look at women's roles? In other words, the, the argument that we will use to address the issue of slavery is primarily a cultural, contextual argument meaning that the way in which slavery was pictured in the New Testament is nothing like we've known in our nation's history. And what the Bible says about slavery is anything short, is hardly a um, a condoning of it. In fact, the Bible is clearly anti-slavery. And yet some would use that same argument, the contextual argument, to then say that women's roles in present-day America or around the world need to be seen through that cultural lens. The argument goes like this. The Bible seems to support the institution of slavery. And the only way for you to get around that issue is to appeal to culture. Namely, that the teaching about slaves should be applied differently today because our cultures have changed. And now you can see where this goes. The person would then say, in the same way then, you need to see the role in the teaching about women here through that same cultural lens and adjust your understanding of those roles through a cultural lens not dissimilar to the cultural lens that you used with slavery. Well, unfortunately, where this goes is then, once you buy into the cultural lens and don't know how to use it and when to use it, some have then used this to then describe one's understanding of moral ethics, in particular sexual ethics, to the same contextual lens. Meaning, you could look at any sexual ethic issue and say ethics have changed in present-day culture, and therefore what the Bible says isn't relevant anymore. Which is why one author trying to deal with this issue gave the title to his book, Slaves, Women's, Women, and Homosexuals. You see, not all people would necessarily follow the slippery slope, but some have. That once you begin to contextualize one issue, how do you know when to stop without having the whole thing fall under the banner of, well, our culture is different, therefore this verse doesn't apply. Now, if you've never had anyone suggest that to you, that's great. My suggestion is you probably will over your lifetime. And therefore, what I want to do is try and help you understand how to be able to deal with that issue in a way that is clear and biblical and know why it is that we would hold the things that we do and what is our thinking and our thought process behind it. So let me answer each of those questions. First, the issue of slavery. Does the Bible support slavery? My answer would be unequivocally no. The New Testament, in fact, never commanded slavery nor commended it. Rather, Paul here is providing instruction as to how slavery in his day was to be regulated. And that's the key. He's providing instruction as to how slavery in his day was to be regulated. So the the instructions regarding slaves and how they're to treat their masters or master slaves should not be inferred as an endorsement of the institution of slavery. There's three reasons why I think this. First, The Bible clearly indicates that forcefully putting someone into slavery was morally wrong. 1 Timothy 1.10. Describing enslavers in that way as abhorrent before God. So the Bible clearly indicates that putting someone, forcing them into slavery was wrong. And in the New Testament, the, the concept of slavery, the institution of slavery, was very different than what we have known in our nation's history. For instance, a person who was deeply in debt in the New Testament times would sell themselves into slavery as a way to pay for their debts and willingly be under someone's care for life. That was most of the case in slavery. And certain there were other instances. Clearly, 1 Timothy 1.10 gives evidence that there were some who forcefully put people under um, their rule. 
So the idea that slavery, from what we've known in our nation's history and that in the New Testament, are the same, really can't be supported. The second reason is that the Bible frequently gives instructions, in general, about things that are to be regulated without endorsing them. For instance, um, divorce in Matthew 19. God hates divorce, and yet he provides instructions for how divorce is to be regulated. So there are things in the Bible that God talks about how we're to deal with them without providing an implicit endorsement of them. Uh, persecution would be another one. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told believers how they are to respond in the midst of persecution. And surely Jesus wasn't endorsing persecution, but rather saying how believers in the midst of a bad thing should know how to conduct themselves. And the third example would be that of unjust laws. Uh, for example, the command to go two miles with one who commands you to go one. In the New Testament times, a Roman soldier could require you to be able to carry his load a mile. And Jesus says, regardless of the justice of that law, don't just go within one mile, but instead go two. So the Bible clearly indicates that there are things that God regulates without providing endorsement for them. And I think that's the case with slavery. The third is that the Bible makes specific statements about the equality of slaves and masters. The Bible is clear on this. In fact, I think the Bible lays the seed for the abolition of slavery. In fact, Philemon 16, Ephesians 6, 9, 1 Timothy 1, or 1 Timothy 6, 1 to 2 all call for slaves to see themselves and masters to see themselves under the banner of Christ as equal. So the equality of essence and the equality of image is clearly laid within the Bible. And as well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, calls for slaves, if they are able, to find a way to free themselves. So, I think that the Bible gives pretty clear principles for how slaves should conduct themselves while not endorsing slavery. And I think that those principles should be transferred from the, from the slavery context of the New Testament to the concept of, of workplace environment today. The idea that slavery, as we know it in our nation, was the same as Paul experienced in his day, I just don't think can be proven. In fact, I think the slavery that was in the United States um, history is far more abhorrent than what we see in the New Testament times. In fact, I would encourage you to listen very carefully to our African-American brothers and sisters who are speaking today with great clarity about the redemption that they feel because of the election of a first African-American president. There's something in there, folks, that I want you to listen carefully to and hear the pain of the past and be sure that no one ever tries to convince you that your Bible is not authoritative because it somehow endorsed slavery. The Bible never endorsed the pain and the sins of the past of our nation, ever. Please don't let anyone tell you that the Bible ever supported that. So the second question, then, is what is the cultural context as it relates, then, to the issue of women? And can you use the same argument from slaves to women? And I don't think you can. And the reason is, is that the cultural issue connected with slavery, I think, is a different one as it relates to women. Therefore, I draw the hermeneutical line right there in terms of contextualizing that particular command. I think that they're different. And let me give you three reasons why. First, the role distinction between men and women and the command for men to be the head of the home and for women to submit is based not upon culture, but in every instance, an appeal is made back to creation. 
all the way back to the way in which God designed things from the very beginning. Jesus talked about it. Paul talks about it. In his instructions in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, appealing back to the garden. Appealing back to the beginning of time. 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 13, regarding men and women roles even in church. The appeal is made all the way back to the garden. So for me, the distinction between men and women, the distinction in roles, is not a matter of culture. It's not a matter of context. It's a matter of created order. And therefore, I think that transcends all time, all culture. And granted, we may express that in different ways throughout various generations. But the bottom line role distinction between men and women must be maintained because it is a created order element, not a cultural one. Secondly, the teaching of role distinction, in my mind, is incredibly clear. 1 Corinthians 11.3 talks about the husband as the head of the wife. Now, these passages are difficult. They're hard for us to be able to understand and work out. In fact, in some cases, I wish that certain passages weren't in the Bible so we didn't have to have Sundays like this. But the reality is, they're there, and we need to talk about them and deal with them. And it's interesting that when that happens, when there are hard texts in the Bible, one of the things that we have to wrestle with is this. Do I submit myself to the clear teaching of the Word, or do I make the Word bend to my opinions, desires, and my likes? In fact, I would much prefer the Bible to not say something like it said in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and to find a way around it. But I can't. And therefore, my heart being captive to what the Word says, I must say that husbands are commanded to be the head of their home. Third, and that is that there is a clear sense that the role distinctions in the Bible do not equal inequality. Galatians 3.28 says that there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, And that passage indicates that there's equality among us. And therefore, please do not confuse a difference of roles from a difference of equality. Don't confuse a difference of function from a difference in value. In point of fact, if somehow you have a difficult time with that and you think that different role equals different value, then you really have a problem with the Trinity. Because Jesus submits to the Father, the Spirit does the will of the Father and the will of the Son, and all of them are of equal essence and of equal nature, but subordinate to one another in different and unique ways. And therefore, what I see in the distinctions between man and woman, between husbands and wives, is a clear communication of equal value, but clearly different function. So it seems to me that the understanding of the cultural context for slaves is an entirely different one when it comes to women. There were some who would like to take these two issues and link them together, but to me it seems as though these issues need to be kept separate because the cultural context issues that are in play are radically different. You see, the last thing I'd want to do is either A, not tell you what I believe the Bible says, or secondly, communicate to you more than what the Bible says. So women, I want you to understand that while you are in no ways less in value, in no ways incompetent to men, in fact, some of you are far more competent than us, there's also a clear role for you in the church, a clear role for you in the home, a clear role for you in the body of Christ. And I think the Bible speaks pretty clearly to this. Now, honestly, um, I wish that I wasn't a man having to deliver this message because some of you women could say, well, that's great, but if you were in my shoes... Even if they were pumps, you wouldn't say that. (laughs) And the reality was, is I wouldn't wear your pumps. And secondly, I'm not in your shoes. But the fact of the matter is, I think this is what the Word says. And therefore, I think it's my obligation to lay before you what I believe the Word of God says, realize that there's an incredible, important value that you play in the body of Christ, 
and that we understand the power of what happens when men and women get their roles right. We need a resurgence of biblical manhood. We need a resurgence of biblical womanhood. And the last two weeks have been a joy to be able to walk through these texts. In fact, so moved was I with these texts about manhood that this Saturday I spoke for 45 minutes to our men about what it means to be a biblical man. And men, I want to call you to be biblical men. And we talked about that last two weeks, two weeks ago. And this morning, wives, I'm going to call you to be biblical women with the same vigor and force and directness and I hope biblical clarity as what we did with our men. Undergirding this entire text of... Um, slaves and masters and women is an important hermeneutical issue. And I want you to be aware of it so that someone does not undercut your understanding of the authority of the word. And it also relates to this. And here's my challenge to you women. If your experience and your opinion doesn't line up with what the word of God says, what will you change? Will you change your opinion and your experience? Or will you find a way to change what the word of God actually says? And we need to do that and look at the word carefully, but we also need to say at the end of the day, I must be a man or a woman of the book. So, let's begin. What does Jesus-centered womanhood look like? Verse 18 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In this text, we've been told, Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. And now the primary call of a wife is to be submissive. What does this word mean? The Greek word means to place oneself under. It means to put oneself in rank. It means that you are to willingly follow. In the original language, the word is in the middle voice. It means that you are to do so out of a desire for the person that you're following, but you do it intentionally yourself. So in a sense, we have this word that means to put yourself under rank under. It means that you are giving someone a gift. The word doesn't speak to the worth, the value, the credibility of the one that you are following, but rather is told, you're told, to do this by virtue of a command from the Lord. The word is used for the submission of Christ to the Father in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. It's used where Christ is submitting to the will of the Father in the cross and in his obedience. So wives, I want you to understand that every time that you fall in line and willingly follow, you are doing exactly what Christ has done. Further, it's a word that's used in in regards to how we are to be submissive to one another, that there's this sense where we are to be submissive to each other. Now, that passage, I think, being submissive to one another, is applied in a different way than it is between husbands and wives. So in one sense, we're all to be submissive to each other, but a wife is to be submissive to her husband in a unique way that's different from what Paul had in mind In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. So what is this submission then based upon? It's based first upon a divinely given ordering of life. It's the way that God has ordained life to function. The Bible clearly identifies a hierarchy of leadership and responsibility. Not a hierarchy of worth or value. Don't confuse the two. A hierarchy of leadership and responsibility. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Ephesians 5.23. 
meaning that God has given this structure while saying nothing about value or equality as a way for life to function. And by the way, that's the way that God has designed all of life to function. Romans 13, where we're told that we are to obey those who are in authority over us. That means that January 20th, 2009, Barack Obama becomes my president of the United States. And I'm commanded to respect, pray, honor, and obey him. Because every authority I have, I've been given by divine decree. No one is in any position of authority without God's absolute sovereign control. And therefore, a divine function of order is what God has given us. Secondly, submission is then based also upon reverence for Christ. The text says that wives are to be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Meaning that the way in which you worship the Lord Jesus, wives, is in the way in which you follow your husband meaning that the object of your submission is not your husband. At the end of the day, he isn't worthy of your submission. He knows that, and you know that, and your kids know that, and we all know that. So let's just get that on the table. It's not a matter of him being worthy, or somehow if I could respect him more, if he could be like this, or could could be like that. It's not a matter of that. The object of your submission is the person of Christ. It is the means by which you worship Jesus. And so if you can't respect your husband because of how he is, you can certainly respect Christ. And every time that you willingly choose to follow your husband's leadership, you are worshiping Christ in a beautiful and glorious way. So the idea is that submission, first and foremost, is this God-ordained order. And secondly, it means this submission that is based upon reverence for Christ. It means that joyful, willing submission makes much of Jesus. And the beautiful thing that happens is that Paul, in this passage, in Colossians 3, takes existing relationships, like husbands and wives and children and slaves and masters, and he takes them and he infuses them with the deity and the lordship of Christ, and he elevates those relationships to a new level so that the world could see how relationships are supposed to work in the kingdom of God. And the beautiful thing is, when a husband leads and children obey and wives submit, the watching world says, wow, you people do family well. And that's why a robust understanding of biblical manhood and a robust understanding of biblical womanhood is absolutely essential for the church. For without it, the basis of all society and relationship unravels and we've got to get family and marriage right. And it begins with godly men and godly women. So there's something wonderful, something powerful, something beautiful about submission. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles over there and see the beauty of what's here. Peter giving instructions as to what wives are to do and how they are to conduct themselves gives us some great instruction here. Handles it from a little different angle, but gives us a great nuance. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Here's what it says. Wives, Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Look at that. Ladies, it means that your words are powerful in the hand of God. You submit to a man who isn't worthy of the respect. You follow him and you honor him. You communicate something powerful about the glory of Christ. And you can even win your husband's heart by your conduct. And he says, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, 
You see, there's something powerful about respectful and pure conduct. And there's also something that's unattractive about disrespectful, impure conduct. In fact, the text goes on and it says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. See, what he's saying here is that a gentle and quiet spirit is an incredibly beautiful and attractive thing. Can I just be honest with you? There are a few things more unattractive than an argumentative, abrasive, shrill woman. You don't believe me? Well, Proverbs has a couple things to say about it. Probably not your favorite verse, ladies, but it goes something like this. Better to live on the corner of a rooftop, right, than with a contentious woman, right? Anyone make that their life first? I don't think so. And by the way, (laughs) and and by the way, man, this is not the time to say amen. This is the time to pray privately and just say, yes, Lord, thank you for that passage. Yes, Lord, thank you for that passage. In fact, so much so, it says it twice. It talks about dripping water. There's something incredibly unattractive about a contentious woman. And yet at the same time, the Bible says there's something beautiful about an intelligent, God-honoring, husband-revering, assertive in the all of the right way woman who honors the Lord, reveres her husband, and sees her role in the beautiful portrait of what God has designed. He goes on in the text, and he he says in 1 Peter 3 that we're to, to see that the, the, the adorning of hair, the braiding of hair, the putting on of clothes, that's not to be the focus. Wearing of gold, putting on of clothing. He says instead, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit. Listen, ladies, this is the kind of, um, of beauty that God looks at and says, now that's really attractive. I'm learning more and more that little girls just have an innate attraction to clothing and stuff, right? Um, I took Savannah uh, shopping with me on Friday, had to pick up some things from the mall, and we walk much more slowly through the mall with her than we do with the boys, and partly because we walk by jewelry cases. And she walks up and she goes, pretty daddy, pretty daddy. She goes, pretty daddy? And I'm like, I'm not buying that for you. Just keep going, keep going. And she's got these cute little little um, high-heeled shoes that she likes to wear around the house. And she thinks she's so, you know, cute in these in these little pink pumps. She doesn't know they're plastic and cheap and really cheesy, but that doesn't matter. She thinks they're they're cute. There's this there's this sense that part of femininity is attractiveness in clothing and appearance. We have, for instance, at our house uh, clothes that we call our "I give up" clothes. You know what those are? Those are when I come home from the office, we have these like sweatsuits, you know, that you wear, and uh, I have these like checkered pants, and y- you're never going to see me in them, I promise you. <laughs> and uh, you know, my, my, my wife has her uh, I give up clothes, you know, those big baggy sweatpants that we wear, and you know, if, if she showed up today with her I give up clothes on, I'd be like, baby, get home real fast, right? Go home. <laughs> Get some, get some dress-up clothes on, right? So clothing is important, and I'm glad you wore some today to church. That's good. <laughs> what Peter's saying here is that your, your, the dressing up of your hearts needs to be in the inside of your soul. It needs to be internal. That there's something beautiful and attractive about a quiet, gentle, submissive heart. Listen, ladies, a beautiful, submissive heart is something that never wrinkles, it never fades, it never sags. It's a beautiful, internal position of godliness. 
oil of Olay, Revlon, Mary Kay, Avon. They can't touch that. Okay? And what we need are godly women who say, by God's grace, I want the internal godliness, the kind of heart that, that possesses a, a gentle and a quiet spirit, the kind of heart that understands that insisting on your rights is not only unattractive, it violates the heart of what a submissive woman is supposed to embrace. It means that to be pushy or selfishly assertive, to not understand the, the, the power of being a support to your husband, to be a support in the ministry and a support to your children, that there's a powerful message that you send. It means that you understand that demanding your way and demanding rights and somehow thinking that a role that looks like submission is unequal to your husband is not really fitting with what the Scripture calls us to. In fact, in some cases, it even causes the Word of God to be reviled. Listen to what Titus 2 says, verse 4. It says, Train the young women. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. I understand, I don't believe that a woman can't have a secular job or outside employment, but what I do think is that her heart needs to be first focused at home. It means that her command is to be submissive to her husband, to be kind, to be self-controlled. And then the text says this. Here's a stunning thought, ladies, that the Word of God may not be reviled. You see, what he's saying here is that Jesus-centered womanhood is this spirit and actions that honor God-given authority, express love for Christ through submission, where you embrace and value the importance of supportive roles in ministry. It means that you understand that to violate this or to kick against it would end up reviling the Word of God. It means that you could actually not platform the Gospel by taking your husband's authority and his role and somehow trying to pull it down. It means that regardless of your husband's competency or his intelligence or his worth, that Jesus commands you to submit and to fall in line with him. So let me clarify to you a few things of what submission is not. A number of years ago I found this list, and I think it may be a Jay Adams list. I'm not exactly sure. Um, for those of you that like um, alliteration, you're going to love this. For those of you who dislike it, this is going to push the envelope a little bit, but it will make the point, and I think, well, what submission is not. First, it is not inequality. It doesn't mean that a husband and wife are somehow unequal or unequal. Secondly, it does not mean the infallibility of the husband. We all know this to be true, right? Husbands make mistakes and wives need to help us. It also does not mean immobility, meaning some women think that submission requires complete passivity. No, the Bible is calling you to active, robust womanhood without violating the concept of what it means for you to be a godly woman. Also, the Bible does not call you to inarticulation. That's a word, trust me, I looked it up. Meaning that you can't say anything. You, you can't share your opinion or share your view. No, we need your input, we need your view, we need your perspective. Nor does it mean intellectual stagnation. Well, I just let my husband do my thinking for me. Don't do that, that's a bad idea. Instead, we need you to think, and think carefully. So it means that you continue to grow intellectually, mentally. Some of you would think, well, submission means I don't have any influence. But rather, you have great influence, and submission does not negate that in any way. And nor does it mean, here's the last one, 
It's good. Iniquitous manipulation. All right. What does iniquitous mean? Iniquitous is sinful. Sinful manipulation. That's kind of pressing the envelope a little bit, isn't it? Iniquitous manipulation. What is that? That's this. It's the woman who says, well, he may be the head, but I'm the neck that moves the head. Right? Okay. That's a little sinful. Let's not say that. Okay. So iniquitous manipulation means that you can find, you know your husband, you know how you can manipulate him. And the Bible calls you to not use your role in that way, to, to use submission as somehow a means to manipulate him to give you what you want. Now, that's what I think submission is and what I think it's not. There are some of you wives who are here today, and you would say to me, Mark, I absolutely agree with that, and I would love to do that. The problem is my husband doesn't lead. So what do I do? And if there's one question that I've heard over the years, it's that question. Which men we need to listen to, but wives we also need to know how you are to handle that. And here's what needs to happen. A couple of strategies. The first would be this. I would encourage you to start with your own heart. Here's what I've seen happen. I've seen happen that women have this idea, some women have this idea, of what male leadership and male headship is supposed to be like. In fact, they have sort of this, this romantical idea of what it was going to be. They got married and they thought their husband was going to be like Jesus in the flesh. And when, and when they got married, they're going to open the Bible and like this, this, this Shekinah glory was going to come down and this is going to be this beautiful moment and he opened the Bible and read the first time and you were like, I gotta find me a different church to go to, right? Or, or you come to church and you see other people, other men, who seem to be so caring and kind and they look nice and you think, well, how come my husband can't be like that? And you have these ideas of what, of, of what leadership was going to be, of, of what it was going to be for your husband to really take the lead. And some of you have grossly romanticized and fantasized with what that's going to be like and the result is that you're embittered. You're, you're, you're privately upset that life didn't turn out like you wanted. And what I want to encourage you is just to think through, is, is my idea of what male leadership was going to be like, is it informed by the Bible, or is it informed by just what I wanted and what my dreams are? Because here's the thing, God wants you to be a godly woman, He wants you to grow in Christ-likeness, and His goal and His aim is to make much of Him, not for you to have the marriage that you've always dreamed about. Now that can happen... But that's not the stated goal. And yet I find some women who their goal, and they are just like they're reading books and they're, and they've got all sorts of books on male leadership and female. And they got these books like, you know, the power of a praying wife. And they're like, yeah, 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 we're going to, you know, pray them into submission and pray them into leadership. And you got all these books and you're handing your husband books and you're going from conference to conference, from seminar to seminar. And he knows what you're doing, right? He, he knows what's happening. The reality is you need to think, what is it that I have in my head and maybe Maybe it's a little off. The second thing I would ask you to do is to pray. To be able to get on your face and to seek the face of Christ because the reality is, here, God can change your husband's heart. You can't. Ladies, you are not the personalized version of the Holy Spirit for your husband. God didn't give him to you to fix him, right? That's not why he gave him to you or you to him. But what I'm saying here is that you, by praying and seeking the face of Christ, could actually be a part of powerfully praying for your husband to change him. By God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, for you to actually see your husband become everything that God wants him to be. And the beautiful thing is, is when God begins to work in his heart, when he changes him that way, it will last over the long haul. When you simply try and change him, that doesn't work. You can't do it. And therefore, I would encourage you to give that up and get on your knees instead. The third thing 
is I want to encourage you to cheer. I mean, get out those old pom-poms from junior high and high school, and when your husband nails it in terms of leadership, man, do a cartwheel, do a Russian, do whatever you got to do, but just tell him, man, go, baby, go, baby, lead, baby, go. Yes, awesome devotions, thank the Lord. Do whatever you need to do. But just celebrate his accomplishment. Make much of it. Let your kids, you know, um, yes, 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 we do. We got a leader. How about you? And your kids are like, yes, 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 we do. We got a leader. How about you? And he's back and forth, back and forth. So that you can tell your husband, way to go. You hit it out of the park. Way to go. And maybe you expect him to hit a home run every time. You know, he doesn't have to hit a home run every time. He just needs a wife to cheer him around the first base, second base, third base. And a cheerleader wife can help her husband motivate ladies by your affirmation, not by your comparison. Fourth, I want to encourage you to talk. Don't nag. There's a reason why those are hard verses in Proverbs, because there's a truth that's implicit there, that a, a nagging wife, a contentious woman, someone who, whose heart always has more and more and more of what they need and never enough, it's a very deep discouragement to a husband. And I want to encourage you to communicate and talk to him. Nothing wrong with encouraging him, um, maybe even helping him to shape his leadership, but don't nag him. And there's a fine line. See, the reality is there's times when we may not know how to lead. We might not know what we're supposed to do. We might not even know what's important. I mean, I've told you before in marriage conferences and things like that that we've done that my wife, you know, changed her love languages about five years in. And that was a pretty traumatic deal because I didn't think you could change your love languages. That was like not part of the agreement. And one day I said to her, honey, I feel like you've, you've changed in terms of the things that you like. And she said, yeah, I, I changed my love, love languages. I'm like, you can't change your love languages. She's like, they're my love languages. I can change them whenever I want. And I, and I said, not without advance notice in writing, you can't. So we had some ground rules, you know, and I, I, she needed to tell me and we needed to talk because I needed to know how to minister to her. I also noticed when we were married early on and when kids were, were there that um, she'd get really frustrated when she would come in the house after going to the grocery store. And, and finally I was like, what, is you know, Myers a problem? What, why are you so frustrated? She said, I, I just, I don't, when my, when my dad was, when I was little and my dad, when my mom would come home, my dad would go out and help with the groceries and he would be like out there like right away and it takes you like five or ten minutes to know that I need help. And I'm like, right? I'm like, of course, go help the groceries, right? Go help my wife. And so now, man, that door, garage door goes open. I'm like, kids, garage, go. And we're out there, you know, we're out there. We're grabbing those because, man, I wanted my wife to know she's important. But I needed her help. But if she had nagged, I would have been like, you know, because nagging doesn't motivate. But honest, heartfelt communication does. And the last one is, ladies, I want to encourage you to model I want to encourage you that there may be times when your husband doesn't even know how to lead and without somehow subverting or uh, usurping his authority, it's appropriate for you to help and model Christ-likeness, model godliness, model what an effective quiet time looks like, model enthusiasm to come to church, model what it means to be able to be a godly woman. You be a godly woman and don't think for a second you can't have huge impact on your family and your husband because God's given you this command to be submissive. Instead, it is your opportunity to embrace the very way that Jesus acted in relationship to the Father. Our redemption is rooted in submissive behavior and the redemption of your home and the environment of family, I think, is rooted not only in male leadership but also women who follow along cheer their husbands and say yes this is my role this is what God has given me and I'm going to do it to the glory of God so that the world will know that Jesus centeredness really works and it works 
Not just because of the beauty of a husband and wife, but it works because of the power of what it means for Christ to be the core. You know, there's something gloriously God-centered about a woman who loves Jesus. Something beautiful about a female that cherishes the Bible, who's a sage of biblical wisdom. There's something beautiful about a woman that takes care of her kids and gives her life in service to others. Embracing submission has nothing to do with your equality or the worth of your husband. Ladies, it has everything to do with the worth and example of Christ. So women, God calls you to express your Jesus-centeredness through godly submission. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) Let's move on to work, shall we? Chapter 3 and verse 22. Employees, verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Time is almost gone. Let me just quickly give you what I think is in play here. First, you're encouraged, commanded, that you are to obey in everything. Meaning that agreement with your boss, or even liking your boss, is not a prerequisite for following him or her. You don't have to like them to follow them. In fact, when when Paul writes Romans 13, it's likely that Nero is on the throne. You don't have to like them. You don't have to respect them. They are a God-given authority for you, and you are commanded to obey in everything. Secondly, you are to obey with sincerity and integrity. Verse 22, the latter part, says, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So the idea is not with eye service. What does that mean? It means that you just simply obey when the boss is around, or when you know he or she is looking, when you know that your work's going to be inspected, when you know they got their, 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 their target focused on you. When I was a kid, I used to watch an old program called Leave It to Beaver. How many of you remember that show? It's a great little show, isn't it? And there was a friend that Beaver had, or really Wally had. His name was Eddie Haskell. Remember him? Eddie Haskell was a snake. That's what he was, right? He was always behind the scenes meddling and manipulating and things like that. And then Mrs. Cleaver would come in the room, and he'd say something like, Oh, good afternoon, Mrs. Cleaver. Your dress looks very nice today. I love those pearls. And you, could, you just hated Eddie Haskell, right? Because he, he had this snaky deceptiveness about him, and then she would leave, and he would be all deceptive again. And that's what eye service means. It means you're Eddie Haskell-like in your work. Your, your boss comes around and man, you're like, you're like Johnny on the spot. They go away and you simply find things to do on the internet. Your boss looks at your work. You're very intent on it. It's going to be a board presentation. You're right on it. But when there's a lack of inspection, your work begins to fade. And what Paul is saying here, you to obey in everything and obey with sincerity. Why? Because work is worship. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That means everything you do, you do as it's for the Lord. That means children, you get to clean your room as to the Lord. That means moms and dads get to work in a marketplace and they do it as unto the Lord. It means that we are accountable. It means that our work is worship and that we have to give an account to the Lord. Verse 25 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. So you've ever been in a work environment where the people have done you wrong in the marketplace? No, one day it will be made right. But it's not now. 
So don't be bitter and don't get back and don't be somehow creating an insurrection at work. One day all wrongs will be made right. Until now, you model Christ and you give evidence that you believe in Jesus and it translates into how you do your job. Listen, we need to show the world the powerful, transforming reality of the gospel and how it makes you the best employee, the the best person at work, the best person, not just in performance, but in the way in which you treat other people and the way in which you make your boss successful. Employers are also given instruction. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Masters, he says, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you've been given a role or other people report to you, realize that that role is a gift from the Lord. And it's the humble who receive grace, not the proud. Don't be so excited about all the rungs you've climbed in the ladder of success or the Lord might cut out that ladder from underneath you. Because at the end of the day, his goal is to be able to make much of him and he wants to use you to platform the beauty of who he is. And therefore, masters in positions of authority are to use their job and their title as the means by which they are fair and just. It also means that one day you're going to have to give an account. It says knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Meaning that one day we're all going to have to give an account for what we do. Every idle word, every idle moment, and how we treated people. You know, our country's in the middle of a significant economic trauma. Jobs are being cut. Companies are nervous. And now is the time for people who believe in Jesus, whose treasure is in heaven, not on earth, who serve a master far greater than any boss, and whose security is not in their 401k, their job position, or somehow the future of the United States economy. Now is the time for some pilgrim people to stand up and say, Look, we trust in the living God. And I don't know what's going to happen to this job. I don't know what's going to happen to this company. But I will not worry. I will not be afraid for I know whom I have believed in. We need some people like that, some bosses like that, some managers like that in the midst of panicked people to speak voices and speak with voices of clarity, compassion, and also Christ-centeredness. So don't miss the opportunity that's in front of you to be able to magnify Christ as a boss, as an employee. Work is worship. A few questions. Are you known as a hard-working, conscientious person full of integrity at the office? Does anybody even know that you're a Christian? When your boss looks at this list, at his list of employees, do you bring him or her joy or grief when they see your name? Do you show subtle signs of disrespect and justify it because the person who's leading isn't a good leader as what you would be if you were in those shoes? Don't go there, because someday God may put you in that position and you'll realize how hard it was, and those shoes don't fit so well. Can you obey someone who you don't respect? Do people come to you with complaints about the management team, even though you're like, oh, I, 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 don't, I don't talk about it, but they come to you, and the reason they come to you is because they've got audience with you. You ought to be the last one to know about all the scuttlebutt in the office, not the first to know. Do you work harder on projects that you know are inspected? Do your employees, let's say you're an employer, do your employees know you to be a fair and honest person? Can they express concerns without fear or reprisals? Are you known as someone who's approachable? Do do you have the sense around you that you are, are, are savored with the beauty of meek compassion like Jesus? You see, five days a week, We are all in direct contact with people 
who know us by what we do and how we lead. And my question is very simple. It's this. Do people see anything in you that reflects the person and work of Christ? Because I want to remind you that the end game of life is not a paycheck. It's not a house. It's not the American dream. The end game is not a promotion. It's not even a rising 401k account. At the end of the day, the end game is making much of Christ. That's the end game. And here is the power of the gospel, College Park. It is that it has the ability to transform every area of life. That the power of the gospel has the ability to have husbands who love their wives like Christ loved the church. Children who obey their parents in the Lord. Wives that are submissive to their husbands who see their role in a beautiful biblical lens and rather than kicking against it, embrace it with all of the robust womanhood that comes along with that. It's employees who see their work as under the Lord and employers who are known as fair and just people. They are godly in the office and out of the office in church and there is a consistency about their life. It is a beautiful thing that the hope for the family, the church, and really our nation is every single one of us asking ourselves one very important question. If you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a child, if you're an employee or an employer, we all ask the one question, it's this. It's this concept of what does it mean for us today to have Christ at the core? What does it mean for Jesus in the middle of our relationships, of family, work, and marketplace, to be the central defining reality of our lives? In College Park, a world is watching and wants to know what difference does Jesus make. Jesus-centeredness is incredibly relevant. We just have to be sure We're making it work in the roles that God has given us. Father, we ask you, in Jesus' name, to help us to know how husbands and wives and children, slaves and masters, need to work this out. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would provide a measure of conviction to husbands who need to lead, to wives who need to embrace submissiveness. And that, Lord, we could see even the power of the cross as that which is able to give us guidance as to how we are to conduct ourselves. So we thank you, Lord, that you've not left us alone, but you've given us a sure word. And we pray that you, by your Spirit today, would just settle us into a particular area of application where our hearts would be conformed to the word and our lives would fit with the beauty of how it is that you've designed life to function.